0: All right, all right. Everybody find a seat. We'll get started. Again, welcome to Legacy Church. My name is Mason Leaf. I'm the regional director of Campus Outreach Knoxville, a new college ministry planning in East Tennessee uh, on the campus at Tennessee Tech University, where we've been the last six years. And then starting up this fall, we'll launch uh, Campus Outreach at the University of Tennessee and then uh, bounce over to ETSU, UTC, and all colleges in between over the next few years. Uh, one of the mission statements, or the mission statement, I should say, of campus outreach is building laborers on the campus for the lost world. And that word world is very important in that mission statement. The reason why is because it's a big vision. It's not just reaching labor, building laborers at Tennessee Tech or University of Tennessee. But we really believe that you reach the campus, you reach the world over time. And uh, because it's a big vision, we have a big staff coming in. We have three new staff here this morning who uh, I was going to introduce. The first one is Taylor Tolleson. Taylor is our area director with Campus Outreach, which means about a million things. If I was to equate him to kind of a World War II uh, historical figure, he would be our Dwight Eisenhower. And so he's a big dog. And he's kind of runs the show. I'm FDR over there in my wheelchair, acting like I'm doing something when my wife does everything. If you know history, that's what happened. But really, Eisenhower did all the work in World War II. And now we can talk history later. You can tell I like it. Uh, the next person we have is Jake Peterman. And he would be your George Patton. He's going to go in and blow things up and get things started. And just, there's going to be all kind of carnage and everything everywhere he goes for the glory of God on the campus for the lost world. And then lastly, we have Cannon Poe. Cannon will be our Harry Hopkins. Exactly. <laughs> Go back and look in Wikipedia at Harry Hopkins. He was the administrator behind FDR who basically ran the whole show for him to kept, it, kept the war going. He helped start the New Deal behind him, he helped all, both theaters of war. And in the end, if you look at the Wikipedia tagline, it said, He helped FDR do everything. And that's what Cannon's gonna be doing. He's gonna be our, one of our head administrators over special projects behind the scenes. Resource staff, and uh, so these guys are coming in and helping us launch this fall, and uh, we're just excited about them. So if you get a chance to uh, hug their necks, take them out to lunch, they'll take they even take they'll probably take you out to lunch if you come up to them. I'm putting you on the spot and uh, get to know them over the next uh, few months and weeks, and be praying for our launch as we uh, head out to this new endeavor. And to end our tagline there, building laborers on the campus for the lost world is, is a big deal, but more specifically. Within that lost world, you can also say we're building laborers on the campus for Central City, the area of town that we're impacting uh, with this church plant. We want to see l- graduates raised up who move and live in the downtown parts of Knoxville to have an impact and multiply their lives and help us plant churches. And so we're really excited about that, and uh, we covet your prayers. Thank you very much. All right. Hey,
1: Mason, would you pray with them real quick? Why don't you guys stay up here yeah. and pray for just their work? Okay. yeah
0: will. And <laughs> And their wives, <laughs> and as every woman in here knows, all these men have wives who really are their backbone. And so, Beth Ann, Abby, and Kimmy, so get to know them too. Let me pray, Father God, thank you so much uh, for these men and their wives. Thank you for the work they're doing on the campus and uh, behind the scenes, and all the areas that they'll be giving their lives away to. It's very important that we build a movement on these college campuses, because those are the people who will uh, be leading something. No matter what endeavor it is, college students will one day be leading something. We pray it would be things that glorify you and make great the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.
1: Amen. All right. Thank you, guys, for coming up here. Yeah, I'm still pinching myself. I can't believe we get to do this. Over 100,000 college students, they're responsible for leading right now. That's amazing to me. And we get to be a part of that as a church. It's fascinating. Um, Hey, If you have your Bible, turn to John 2. We're starting the second chapter of the book of John as we go through the series called Hero, which is a look at Jesus through the eyes and through the gospel of John. I'm enjoying it. Very fun passage today. Very excited about teaching it. My name is Luke. If I've not met you, I'm the lead teaching pastor here, and I'm excited about this passage. Um, so, John two. You know, one thing that we get to experience is humans, um, which is unique from the things that we create. As God creates us, we have access to what theologians call common grace. If you've never heard that, it's, it's a scholarly term for grace that is extended to all of mankind regardless of whether or not they love Jesus. Regardless of whether or not someone loves God, they have laughter, right? People that don't love God, they experience the birth of a child, and th- those are feelings that you can't really put words to. I, I mean, they all escape me. I was there for all of my kids' birth, and there's this a feeling inside that came from God. But had I not loved God, I know I would have had a good feeling as well. The Bible talks about in Matthew 5 how rain comes and the sunrise comes to people, whether they are good or evil, righteous or unrighteous. This is called common grace, okay? It doesn't take a lot of teaching for everyone to understand that. But also, part of being human is experiencing when we don't seemingly feel that common grace. The music kind of stops, you know? The wine runs out. And whenever that feeling comes, it feels like life is starting to drain slowly, leak slowly until we're alive, but kind of not really. The vibrancy and the abundance of life that we chase after and that we want is gone. And I think whenever I look at the news and I see the lifestyles of some of the celebrity and wealthy upper class that we all catch in the media, it seems to me that they bring a good distinction and a definition of what it means to run out of common grace. Because now you have a person that has the time and they have the finances to chase down anything that could bring a smile to their face. They could look for any experience and any pleasure and they can afford it. But what do we see time and time again? They run out, don't they? They just find out probably a little quicker than you and I do that the wine always runs out. And the music, Always stops. I was doing a little bit of reading on some articles of some men and women who have experienced this just in pop culture. And one of them was a guy I'd never heard of, but his name is Hunter Thompson. I think he died in 2005, if I'm not mistaken, and he's an Ernest Hemingway kind of character, right? Kind of the complete man. He's experienced anything you can experience, like the Dos Equis guy on on the commercial, right? He's done everything you can do. He drank deeply of life. Everybody knew him. He was invited to all the parties. He was an innovative journalist, so he's influential on shaping culture. But he took his own life, like Ernest Hemingway. And when they found his suicide note, One of the middle sentences in Hunter Thompson's last words to this world were this. 67. That is 17 years past 50, and 17 more than I needed or wanted. Boring. Those were his last words. It's a man who has run out of what the world could offer. He found at the very end that the last 17 years, nothing in God's creation was sufficient to help him feel that abundant life and vitality. And that's what happens when our joy and our life's center of mass is connected to what the creation can offer. Whenever we do that, we drain through it quickly and we quickly find ourselves in a place where the party has stopped. The wine has run out, and the music has ended. I think if we're all honest with ourselves, many of us are here now, in that place now, or you have been. Or you know that you probably will be. Or you're living life closely with someone who is struggling with this very same thing. Alive, but not really alive. And not everyone is suicidal like these men. I understand that. But if we continue to be honest with ourselves, we can also admit that this abundant life-giving joy is a little bit more guest than resident. Right? Comes in spurts, but leaves almost as quickly as it comes, looking around, very little to celebrate. I know I can feel like that a lot of times. If you feel like you are without this vibrant, life-giving joy, then this passage is for you today. It's for you today. I guess really to remind you, the whole book of John is for you. John is a unique book in the fact that the apostle who wrote it, right? he says in the very last chapter why he wrote it. He says, I write these things to you so that by believing in Jesus, you may believe by hearing what he did, and through that belief, have life. So this passage is for you. Joy is for you. Jesus is for the joyless. Jesus is for those who have run out of anything that you can call abundance. You're on the south side of abundance life. Jesus is for those who see very little reason to celebrate anything. So what I'd love to do is look at this passage and see how it applies to you, because it does. And see how beautiful and thoughtful and considerate and incredibly abundant Jesus is for you and me that we would worship him well today so look at chapter 2 and verse 1 and if you don't have it or you don't have a bible we will put it up on the screen for you it starts off this way on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Okay, let's pause there just for a minute, right? They have no wine. That's the problem we're faced with, right? It's most likely that no one at this wedding, none of the guests knew what was being said about Jesus. Very likely. Everything that we've read so far in the book of John, the last few weeks as we've taught through it, is in the same week as this. This has all happened in the same seven days. This is actually the seventh day of the same week. I mean, even his disciples have only been following him for two, maybe three days. So he's just a guy coming with his friends and his mom. This wedding is actually almost 10 miles away from where they were in the very last scene. So given the time, given the distance, it's very likely that it's not Jesus, the Lamb of God that everybody saw whenever he walked in. It's just a guy with his friends and his mom. That's it. It probably wasn't Jesus in the gang. It was probably just the gang with Jesus of Nazareth in it. Nothing that would just jump out and say, Wow, look who's here at this wedding. That's likely what happened. But they all saw very quickly when they came in that there was no wine. Now this is at the end of a banquet. This is towards the end, and we know that because of what the head servant says a little bit later in the passage, saying, basically most people kind of give their best stuff up at the front and then they're kind of just by the end of the whole wedding they're drinking Bartles and James anything that has an alcohol content you know they're just pumping it out there but but you guys here at the end are putting your best stuff out there so we know that this is towards the end but still it's kind of a nightmare situation for the wine to run out that would have fallen on the groom's head It's his responsibility to make sure everybody has enough food and everybody has enough wine, right? It was a big deal. And if you did not err on the side of having too much and you actually ran out before the celebration was over, it was considered a shame and it was considered a slight towards your guests. In fact, if you look at history, you will find out very quickly that there have been situations in this time, in this day and place, where the bride's family would bring a lawsuit against the groom's family for not providing an adequate wedding. Isn't that crazy? See, people were suing people for stupid things even back then. There is nothing new under the sun. So by the time the gang gets here, Mary sees this nightmare about to happen. So she turns to her son, Jesus. Right now, now listen, John says this is his first sign miracle. That's what he's about to say. It's not like he's just dropping miracles everywhere he goes. His ministry is barely a week old. I mean, it's super new. His disciples are super new. Everything is brand new. Now, she knew that he was the Lamb of God because the angels talked to her back when she was pregnant, right? She knew who he would become. But most scholars, and I believe this as well, just leaned into him because he's a resourceful son. He's a good son, always providing for the family. Remember, this is not anymore Jesus the carpenter's son. He's Jesus the carpenter. The last account we have of his father was when he was at the age of 12. We get that from the book of Luke, by the way, right? Just a firstborn son with a widow as a mom, most likely, most likely. So all of her life, all of her Parenting life. She's used to leaning on Jesus. Most of the finances in the household mostly came by the manual labor of his craftsman hands. She leans to Jesus and tells him, There is no wine. I think Mary was just expressing sympathy and compassion in this moment. And I'm not teaching this, I am submitting it to you to consider. I wonder if she's so sensitive to the matter at hand, because if anyone understands what cultural shame feels like on a young couple when a wedding doesn't go right, She gets that. She was pregnant at the wrong time to be pregnant. We don't have really a deep account of Mary's wedding, but I bet it had less people in it than this wedding did. I think she gets that shame, sensitive to the whole thing. So when she sees that this thing is going the wrong way, she wants to provide some sort of a solution, turning to her son, and he says this in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, this is an awkward and clunky passage for a lot of people, and they get lost in several different ways here. Can we look at this? Because it looks like he's being a jerk, doesn't it? Doesn't it look like Jesus is just being a little rude? Being a jerk? And then what is this thing about him saying, I'm not going to do anything about this, and then he turns around and does it anyway? (laughs) Why didn't he just save the awkward moment and just say, huh, okay, well, let's take care of that. Let's make more wine. That's what he ended up doing anyway. And is she really ignoring him? He said, my hour has not yet come. She still goes to the servants and says, listen, whatever he does, just make sure he gets what he needs. You know what I'm saying? So what is going on with this passage? It's very telling. I think it's where the the, the more insightful part of who Jesus is is trapped up in all of this awkwardness because Jesus is not being a jerk now there is a slight rebuff to his mom but it's courteous it's courteous in fact the phrase woman is the exact same one he uses from the cross whenever he's got John the the disciple not the baptizer there and his mom he says woman behold your son behold your mom And he takes her into his house. John does. So there's this beautiful, tender moment. It's a courteous thing to say. Now, in today's English language, we don't have very many analogs to this word woman. The best one anyone can come up with doesn't even work in the South. It's called ma'am. Ma'am is the best one anyone can come up with. The reason it doesn't work, I think, here in the South is because it's too common. We use it all the time, so it loses a little bit of its courteousness. It's almost empty freight to us today to say the word ma'am, right? So what we want to know about this is it is a kind word, but it is not a close word. It's a hospitable word, but it's not an intimate word. It's not like mom or mother, which is what we would expect him to say. Ma, mama. It feels awkward, though, doesn't it? You know, I was thinking about this today. It's funny. It's providential. I guess that my mom's in town. No one look over there. She'll be super nervous, okay? No one look right there. But my mom was here, and I was thinking, how would that sound? How could I say something to feel rude like this feels, right? Because if I said woman, if I interrupted her in the middle of a sentence, I said, hey, woman, like that, she would know I was joking around. She wouldn't even probably listen. She'd keep talking on top of me or laugh at me or punch me in the arm. So I thought, what could I do? And I almost did that chickened out yesterday. I had some time with her and I thought this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna wait till it's a serious sentence and I'm gonna snap my fingers at her and point with a look on my face like, like that. I, thought, I just gotta find the right moment to do it. And I chickened out like seven times cause I thought I'm gonna get the business end of her taser. I know how that's gonna go. I'm not gonna be rude to my mom. But here Jesus is not even being rude to his mom. He's doing something beautiful. He's creating some space between human agenda, human motives, human influence, and what he must do. His actions. He's creating He had to do the same thing with Peter, didn't he? Peter comes to him um, with his motives, with his agenda, with with his idea. And and Jesus says, You're not even thinking about the Lord. You're not thinking the right way. You're thinking about yourself. He's handling Mary the same way. Because the only purpose For Jesus' coming is his father's will, and no one gets the inside track, not even mom. All relationships, even tight family relationships, even his mother relationship, it must remain subordinate to his mission, God's mission for him on earth. That's what's happening. I want you to imagine how hard this would have been for Mary. This is a little bit of a footnote or a sidetrack, I guess, because it doesn't really pertain to the purpose of the text, but just to feel the text a little bit more. There was probably an awkward temptation for both of them. She birthed him, remember. She nursed him. She taught his little fingers how to hold something, how to walk, fall, and get back up. And now he's creating distance. (sighs) It's probably very difficult. But Mary, like everybody else, needs Messiah. She needs the Lamb of God who will remove the sins for the world. Mary was mom, but she was a sinner and she needed a hero all at the same time. Jesus brilliantly is creating a courteous, loving distance. Just in this moment, we see this. He also does something else that's awkward that we've already seen, and that's that the, the object of the wine being gone is brought up, and the first thing he does is start chattering on about his hour has not yet come. And anytime you see Jesus talking about his hour, my hour has not yet come. My hour has now come. He's talking about the moment on the cross, the moment emptying a tomb. He's talking about his purifying moments, the gospel for us. That's what the hour is. Jesus, there's no wine. It's not time for me to be crucified yet. That's his response, virtually. They don't seem to be congruent or even have anything to do with each other. And then he goes off and he makes more wine. Anyway, it's odd, isn't it? What you want to do is you want to remember when you're reading this. This is John calling this a sign miracle. A sign miracle is not like a normal miracle that might be stripped naked of any kind of heavy, heavy meaning. This is one that's like a billboard that says... This is who Jesus is. This is why he's here. This is why he's doing what he's doing. There's seven of these in the book of John. This is the first. It's not a small thing. This is a big picture for everyone watching. And wine is the context. Okay, Biblically, probably still today a little bit, but biblically, wine is looked at as life. Life of the vine. Productive. Abundance. Joy. We get that. That doesn't require a lot of convincing. Joy. Joy and abundant life. Amos 9.13 is one of the examples, and there's probably over a dozen. I know there's over a dozen in the Old Testament alone, pointing to the fact that this is what joy symbolizes. Amos says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. So when Jesus makes wine, he's forecasting. It's a sign miracle. He's pointing to what? A better groom who won't run out of wine. You have to capture that or you will miss this whole thing. A better groom who won't run out of wine. This is actually an active parable. He's acting out a parable for everyone to see. What he's telling his mom is, is my hour has not yet come to actually hang on a cross and vacate a tomb. That's not my time. But this moment will point to that time. It will point to this time. Remember, we're at a wedding, a wedding, which is the most brilliant picture of the gospel that we probably have today. Jesus being a better groom, laying down his life, For a trusting bride, this is what we have going on right now. Jesus is showing us that as good as this groom might be, Jesus is going to be a better groom, and none of his actions will bring shame to him or anyone else because he has a wine life, it's metaphorical, life, abundant life, extended to all of his bride, who he creates a seat for at a feast, an ultimate feast, a seat that will never be taken away. This is a billboard pointing to that. So, of course, these things ought to be linked together. Even though it feels incongruent, even though it feels like they don't belong, they most certainly do belong. Jesus knows this, but he won't be moved by his mother's suggestion. I feel like if I was there and Jesus were to continue talking, I don't know that he would say this, but you could kind of feel him saying, Mom, I'm not doing this because you hurt for those people. I'm doing this because God hurts for his bride. And I believe that right now, God wants me to paint a picture of his goodness for his bride through me and through this action to tell everyone this is why I'm here. I think this is what this is showing us. So does she ignore her son? No, she doesn't. She's trusting. She's hoping. Faith, if you want to call it that. I think it's more hope than it is faith. I think when she initially appeals to her son, it's his, it's his mom to child. But I think at this point, it's more as Believer to the Lamb of God. I think she commits the matter to Him. Whatever He does, be ready for it. I think that's what she's doing right now. I'm going to move on through this passage. So let's look at verse 6. Verse 6, a lot of really cool stuff in here. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That's like a small kiddie pool, by the way. Jesus said to the servants, Wow, the water containers, the water containers in this, that's the key to this passage. It's a little bit fascinating because these were meant, they were made of stone, not clay, because they had a special purpose to them. They were used to purify for ceremonies, like purify your hands, your head, utensils. You'd wash utensils in these things. They had six of them because they went overboard because that's what the Hebrew nation did. They'd go overboard when it came to things like purification. And they especially would have these at weddings because that was a religious significant moment. So they had six of these. For John, for John, they represent an old order, old law, old custom that Jesus was actually coming to replace. No longer would it be water in stone pots that would purify us. It would be the blood from his veins. It would be him. He would replace the old system. No more law and performance, but it would be grace that would come. John knows this. But what's interesting to me, and I think we miss this a lot of times, I certainly miss this. Jesus goes out of the way, I mean, overboard, to make sure that none of us can come up with an alternative theory for how all of a sudden there's a bunch of wine. John's gonna make sure, just as Jesus made sure at the wedding, that no one's like, hey, well, there must have been a lot of donkeys carrying the cart. They had a lot of wine on it, gosh, I must have been in the bathroom longer, than I thought I didn't even see them bring that wine in, that's what I think happens, you know, he wasn't going to let any of that happen, it needed to feel like, whoa, what's going on, these were big jars, and they were full to the brim, okay, now, I did the math for you, this is what nerds do, and this is how much I love you, if we took the math, and we said between 20 and 30, because that's what they say, We just say 25, we'll call it 25, just for math's sake. That's about 150 gallons, 150 gallons of wine. That would be an equivalency of just under 20,000 United States fluid ounces, yielding 3,840 glasses of wine. Think about that. 3,840 glasses of wine, I get that because in restaurants, the average pour rate is about five ounces. If you're at a dinner party, it's closer to four, right? But five fluid ounces, so if you go to Aubrey's tonight and you order some wine, you'll get five ounces. It's about that much in a normal glass, right? That's what they had. That's a lot. Now, Where it becomes a little bit astounding is that historically at weddings in this part of the world at this time, they were right around and would top out at about 150 people. That's what we see in in scholarly texts and historical accounts outside the Bible that were written alongside the Bible in timeline. About 150, unless you were a celebrity or royalty, then you would have between 150 and like 1,000. But up to this point, 150 is like a massive wedding. It's still pretty big today too, isn't it? About 150 is about normal, I, I find. And we know that this was not a royal wedding because Jesus and his mom and his friends are there. I mean, Jesus just brought his friends. Like, hey, I'm at your wedding. Good luck. Hey, I brought my friends. Right? Probably not a royal wedding. If that is the case and you do the math, that's 26 glasses per guest, over five bottles of wine per person. (laughs) No one can drink that much wine. No one can... Like a fraternity would struggle with that wine. The total price tag on something like this would probably bottom out and be no less than about $20,000, $25,000 all the way up to well over $100,000 depending on the value of wine at that time if compared to wine today. Isn't that amazing? 26 glasses of wine. You know what the average wedding costs in America today, 2016? $26,400. It's the average wedding, Right? Could you imagine being married, spending just about everything you have, because that's what happens, right? Or everything your parents have. And then having somebody come in and say, whatever you spent on this wedding, I'm going to double it with just wine. That's a lot of wine. A lot of really good wine. And that's the point of this picture. Jesus brings wine, a ton of it. Kitty pool's full of it. Over the top. I want you to also remember, and this is where people get nervous, so hear me out, don't judge me, all right? Remember that this is towards the end of a wedding banquet where people had already had plenty to drink, right? People were already headed to and past tipsy by the time this miracle happened, right? Does that make some of you nervous? This is what the master of the ceremony said. Usually, this good stuff, it comes out at the beginning, And then you bring out the Zima and the Miller Genuine Draft much later on. And if it's got an alcohol level above cough syrup, we're all drinking it and high-fiving each other because we're not paying for it, right? That's usually what happens in a wedding. But you bring your good stuff out now of all times. It's amazing. They're already there. They're already doing the funky chicken out on the dance floor, hitting on their cousin, making lifetime mistakes. That's happening. Then Jesus brings this miracle. Does that make some of you nervous? He provides a miracle that might, that might lead people towards deep inebriation. Scholars struggle with this a lot of times, and that's why if you pick up the wrong commentary or you look online, heaven forbid, please don't do that on this passage, they will start coming up with these wacky theories over how Jesus did not do this because Jesus is not performing like they want Jesus to perform. Maybe he just diluted the wine with like special water. I read that from a reputable commentary. Maybe God tricked the head servant to feel like it was good wine so that the shame would not come onto the couple. I read another brilliant commentator say that. Don't buy it. He did what he says that he did. It's surprising sometimes for people that a teacher of self-control would bring a miracle that would supply such a large quantity of wine, high-gravity wine at that, because that's what it would mean to be expensive back then. Sean Calvin says this. I'll have the quote up on the screen. He says, as part of a larger quote, it is our own fault if his kindness is an incitement to luxury, but it is an undoubted proof of our temperance if we are sparing and moderate in the midst of plenty. Hear me in this. This miracle was not to provide drunkenness. It was to provide clarity. Being over the top with the amount of wine was not to provide drunkenness. It was to provide clarity of Jesus, of why he was there. He's a better groom whose wine will never run out. A Jesus who's replacing old customary laws and purification rites with himself. That's what he's doing. Don't miss what so many miss. Don't miss it here. This picture is for you. Today, the world's wine will always run out. The music will always stop. Friends, it's the way our world is. It's a broken place. Hunter Thompson found this out. 17 years he couldn't figure out why he was living his last 17 years. His wine had run out. He needed a heroic groom whose wine never runs out. We need a better priest who replaces stone jars. We need a joy bringer that brings joy that increases and gets better as time goes on, not diluted as time goes on. I'm super encouraged by this first sign miracle. It's my favorite one. Because what Jesus is saying is, I am here and I brought joy. I brought life. I brought life. He doesn't come and say, surprise everybody, I brought more rules. I brought more commandments conditions for you they're shiny they're new i know you got the old testament but you guys keep sinning and inventing new ways to sin so i've got second edition now where i fill in all the gaps and make all the mistakes better i've got new rules hope you enjoy it he shows up to a wedding and he says i bring grace i bring life and life abundant life that you can't even consume an abundancy that you can't even get your arms around that's what he's doing here it's fascinating to me. I love this passage. Look what God is doing here. Look what God has done for you. Just consider what God has done for you. He's a God that's already brought common grace to you and me. We experience things. Today you will experience things that other people will experience, and it will bring joy to you. You'll be excited, but when that runs out, he brings a special grace for his people, for his bride, an unending well of joy that will never run out, ever. This passage finishes like this in verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I find that, fast, that, that last part a little bit funny because they would have, if they're disciples, they already believed in him, right? But it says that his disciples now believed in him. I think we know what that means, right? We believe, but come on. We really need to believe a lot, a lot more, right? I believe Jesus, but sometimes I need some depth to my belief. What you'll see in these disciples through the rest of this book of John is that their faith and their belief will increase and get deeper and more mature, and it's the same thing that happens to you and me, amen? That's what happens to us. We grow. We're disciples who believe that believe more and more. So as we apply this to our lives before we finish, I want you to consider your own life. Because the truth that we know from this text, the truth that we know from watching the world, is something happens to our heart when the music stops and the wine runs out. Something happens to us. Oftentimes, we go looking for more wine, we go looking for anything that promises that will bring joy to us. We start looking and searching. I see this as a counterfeit in what we find. I think when we start looking for joy, sometimes we find happiness, and we mistake that for being joy. Happiness is more of a smile on the face. I find joy to be more of a smile of the soul. You could be happy and joyful at the same time. Those are great times, aren't they? You can be happy and not joyful, right? I'm on a jet ski, but my life is falling apart. You could be joyful and not happy. I've been in many hospital rooms. That's a tough place. It's an odd mixture of emotions, right? A lot of people, they see happiness and they think that's what I need. That's the broken well holding what I need and they chase after it, happiness after happiness after happiness, hoping, hoping to get the abundance that only Christ can bring to us. Listen, I know life can get tough for you, And I know many of you, when people ask you how you're doing, you lie. And you say, I'm doing fine. Because to be honest, it just brings up too much drama and pain. It's just easier to say fine. You don't wanna relive how you're really doing. I know for many of us, the wine is tapped out. The joy is gone. It's not even leaking anymore. It's just gone, no abundance. And what we will do is we will search out the closest thing, counterfeit, Last year, I reread a book that Oscar Wilde wrote called The Picture of Dorian Gray. It's a classic work. It's probably the one that put him on the map, more or less. Dorian Gray is a story, if I were to say it in two sentences, right? Story of a young man who has a portrait of him. Now, this is the thing. As time goes on, as time goes on, the portrait ages, but he does not. He hides the portrait, so no one sees this. He's wealthy. He keeps his good looks, Right? And so he goes and he starts looking for joy. He starts looking for the real abundance and substance of life. But he can't find it anymore. He can't find it anywhere. So he starts slumming, looking in any cellar, any basement, any brothel, any drug den, anywhere he could go to find life in abundance. And he can never find it. Meanwhile, the picture in his house is aging and getting more gruesome and older and showing the signs of this as he maintains his beauty. The last page of this book shows him dying because he too found that the world's wine, creation's happiness, is insufficient for what his soul really needed. I think like Dorian, many of us go around looking for anything that will promise the joy and the life. Now, the whole book of Ecclesiastes, all 12 chapters, is Solomon, who calls himself the preacher in this book, telling us that's vanity. If you disconnect your search for happiness, if you disconnect that from the Lord, it's vanity. You can build, you can eat, you can drink, you can sleep, you can laugh, you can get friends, you can do whatever. It's all vanity. What are you turning to in your life whenever you are lifeless, joyless? What is that broken cistern? That's what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah is talking to the people of God. He says, God tells everybody, you have left the springs of true life and you've created wells with a bunch of cracks and holes that don't even work. And that's what we do. That's what I do. Something is promising to give you joy in life and it's not working, is it? It's a broken well, that's why. Some of us, we turn to entertainment because it's a distraction, it's just a distraction away from the hard, hectic, difficult life that we genuinely are living. For a lot of people, it's pornography. Just an escape, just a moment right? For a lot of people, it's alcohol. I mean, it's, that's what this passage, I mean, if you were to bring that context back into today, alcohol does the same thing. Alcohol is actually unique in the fact that it doesn't bring life. It just brings numbness of death. Because just for a moment, you don't feel it. For a moment, you don't feel the struggle. You don't feel the pain. Listen, you don't have to get drunk to be an alcoholic. <laughs> you don't. You can abuse alcohol without doing that. If you're at the end of a a long, hard day, and you're like, I cannot live until I have this drink. I have to have it to complete me in this day. That's alcoholism. It's an abuse of something. It's running to a broken well. There's no joy in it. Luke, are you saying that we can't drink wine? No. No, drink wine. But it's not ever going to be your savior. That's a well that doesn't hold any water. There will be times when life is more than what seems bearable and nothing seems worth celebrating for you, yet ultimately we are called to be a people of joy. That's the calling of us, right? Why? Because we have Jesus at our wedding, and he's not just a guest, he's the groom. (laughs) He's better than a guest. He didn't just show up with mom and a gang. He's the groom. His wine never runs out. He says, take take the purification jars and get them out of here. My grace is sufficient. You don't have to perform out of shame anymore. You could just live obedient lives because you enjoy me. So we could be joyful. Even in a time where things are not happy, we could be joyful. If we were to apply this to each other, even in this room, other Christians that you know, those who are in the church, It's tempting for us. It's tempting that when someone wants to get their life back on track, maybe they're out of joy, their life kind of feels like it's empty. There's no vibrancy or abundance in their life. One of the things our hearts want to do is it leans towards the purification jars, water, works. What can I do to make this pain go away? It's easy for us to let them do that. Well, yeah, yeah, you should be reading the Bible every day. You should be coming to church every single time the doors are open and join a community group and write checks and volunteer for everything. Then your life will be good. Then you'll have the vibrancy. We're leading them the wrong way. Be careful if you do that. Don't lead them towards laws, lead them towards enjoying Jesus. This is a struggle for people. I still get pushback on this a lot. Joy is not found following rules, joy is found enjoying the one who followed the rules because we couldn't follow the rules. That's where joy is found. That is why the Westminster Catechism says that's the chief end of man, to enjoy God and glorify him always. I think we best glorify him when we enjoy him always. But but Luke, what about rules? What about obedience? The best kind of obedience comes when you enjoy Jesus. Or you could be a Pharisee because that's the only alternative there is. Both are following God's statutes. One's doing it with a deep well of joy. The other's doing it because he's scared to death God's going to pound or blast him if he doesn't do it. Right? And we know how Jesus feels about that. So be careful. Because you will see people out of life. The wine has run out for people. Watch what their heart does. Watch how their heart responds. Be careful. Help lead them to the joy of God in that moment. I hope that makes sense. And then finally, as we look at Knoxville, because I always like to at least carry a piece of this into how we build as missionaries. We're a church of missionaries. What does that mean for Knoxville? Because Knoxville needs celebration that the world's not going to bring it. Knoxville needs a joy and a life. The campus needs an abundancy that the world's just never going to bring it. Because sadness, sadness is not answered by Taco Tuesdays. Right? No one wakes up on Friday and say, I'm so excited. I can wear shorts today at work. I live for this. It brings me so much life. Casual Fridays. It doesn't work. But aren't there a lot of people, that get up in the morning, and all they can think about is happy hour between 4 and 7 that day. And all the day is just a grind to get through until they can get to happy hour, right? That's it. The world's not going to bring them what they want. The hangover will end, the wine runs out, and they are left the same sadness that they were whenever they woke up that morning. You know, in the early years or months, I guess you could say, the early couple years of this church, most of my time with people were in the bars. And one thing I learned when I would talk to different patrons from stool to table to manager to whoever, the one thing I would learn is they all, they're all singing the same song. It's like a barfly anthem, right? My life stinks, My life is garbage. They always feel like that, but they keep coming back. Why? The stool is comfortable. Everybody accepts me here, which it's not real acceptance if they don't even really know you, right? But it seems they all accept me here, and I have this drink, this tonic, and it makes me forget for a moment the pain I'm going through. It's all the same. When you bring Jesus to a broken world, You will either bring a Jesus of rules or you will bring a Jesus of joy. You'll bring one or the other. Help them see the cracks in their well. It's usually pretty easy to see that. Help them see where the cracks in their false wells, their cracked wells are at. Right. I've done this from time to time. I've asked people a question. If Jesus were to come to you today and give you 26 glasses of wine right here, put it right before, check that. Everybody in the building, everybody in these five city blocks, everybody gets 26 glasses of wine, the best wine in the world, and he does it immediately. What does that tell you about God? Very few, if any, are going to say God likes it when we get drunk. They know better. They know better. That's a crazy miracle when you think about this. They see a beautiful creation that implies an even better God who could create something like that. They see abundance, life, and joy. Joy. Don't bring them rules. They don't care. Either did you. Right? Don't bring them rules. Show them that Jesus Jesus brings wine, joy, celebration, abundance, life, fruitfulness at such a rate that we can't even get our arms around it. Amen? Amen. Hey, stand with me. I want to read through this passage with you. I won't make you read it back to me. I'm just going to read it to you. It is in Revelation 19. Reading a little bit of Revelation every week has been helpful. It's the same author, right? It's the book we're reading now. He says this in the 19th chapter. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. These are the true words of God. Church, these are the true words of God for us today. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you so much for being so good to us and being a God of abundance, being a God of life. That would have been such bad news to me at that time in my life where I needed life, I needed joy, I needed abundance, I needed grace, and you would have just brought me rules. But Father, you brought me so much more, and I wanted to follow you. I wanted, to, I wanted to do great things that glorified you. I enjoy doing those good things. Help us be a people that see that in a passage like this. Help us be a people, Father, that we could read a sign miracle like this and say, wow, look how beautiful God is. Look what he has done. Father, we need help because I know today in a room this size, people have run out of wine. The world has just stopped giving them what they want. The music has stopped, and they are already being tempted, already even sitting here, to start going and looking like Dorian Gray around corners, in alleys, online, in the bars, anything that they can do to medicate, to escape, to bring some semblance of happiness again. Father, would you make yourself real to them today? Make yourself so present to them today Lord, your love for them, your ferocious, abundant love for them. Lord, that they too, just like if they were sitting at that wedding, say, oh my goodness, look what God has done. Look what God has done. Father, help us lead each other, not to law, but to radical grace that helps us obey, that helps us perform, that helps us live a life that brings so much glory to you. Help us do that. And Father, help us love a city that is so incredibly broken. Help us love a city, Father, and develop a fluency in painting pictures for people and describing to people how joyful you are over us. That you're not scorning and frowning, but you're smiling as you engage your bride. You're so good to us. You're so sweet. And as we worship you today, Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to help us see you clearly see you passionately, and respond in our hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.